So I'm, I'm, I'm Jim Malowitz, um, a reporter with the Texas Tribune. Um, and on behalf of my employer, I uh, just wanted to uh, welcome you to the seventh annual Texas Tribune Festival um, and to our panel, Modernizing the Grid. And uh, with me are a bunch of really smart people. Um, and uh, I'll just introduce them uh, really quickly and then we'll get going. Um, all the way um, to my left, we have uh, Dr. Uh, Michael Weber. He's the uh, Deputy Director of the uh, Energy Institute at the University of Texas. Um, and uh, he's a Josie Centennial Fellow in Energy Resources and an Associate Professor of Mechanical Engineering here. And uh, he's also the Co-Director of the Clean Energy Incubator um, at the Austin Technology Incubator. And his uh, research focuses on policy and technology as they relate to energy and the environment. And then um, uh, next to him, we have uh, State Senator Jose Rodriguez. He's a Democrat from El Paso. And he's represented uh, Senate District 29, uh, which includes more than uh, 350 miles of the Texas-Mexico border. Um, he's uh, represented since uh, 2011. Um, he serves as Vice Chairman of the Senate Agriculture, Water, and Rural Affairs Committee and sits on the Natural Resources and Economic Development, Transportation, and Veterans Affairs and Border Security Committees. Um, and he's the uh, chairman of the Texas Senate Democratic Caucus. Um, to his um, right, we have um, uh, uh, Texas uh, PUC Commissioner uh, uh, Marty, uh, Brandy Marty Marquez. She was appointed to the commission by uh, Governor Rick Perry in 2013. Um, she previously served on the governor's uh, chief of staff, as the chief of staff and, and uh, in several other positions um, under uh, Governor Perry. Um, and she's also serves on the Texas Reliability Entity, which addresses cybersecurity, regional standards, and enforcement issues. Um, and we also have uh, Ronnie Sandoval. Um, he is the Director of Grid Modernization at the uh, Environmental Defense Fund. Um, he manages um, EDF's grid modernization efforts and works with national and regional energy organizations to maximize opportunities for clean energy adoption. Uh, previously, he was with um, Con Edison, where he led uh, energy efficiency efforts and oversaw the operation of its transmission and distribution systems, and he has held management positions at Con Edison. Um, and last but not least, um, to uh, my, uh, my left, we have uh, Dr. Robert Hebner. He's the director of the Center for Electromechanics at the, here at the UT Austin. Um, and uh, he and the, uh, the center develops advanced technology in the areas of power and, and energy. He was previously acting director of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, uh, which is an agency of the uh, U.S. Department of Commerce. And he also worked in the Office of Management and Budget to prepare technology portions of uh, the Bush administration's um, 1990 budget. Um, so like, like most panels this weekend, uh, we'll go about 60 minutes with about 15 of those minutes devoted to your questions. Um, please keep your phones quiet, but uh, feel free to express your thoughts on Twitter or Snapchat or whatever the kids are using these days. Um, the hashtag is TripFest17. Um, um, so let's go. Just some quick um, electric grid facts to get us situated. Um, just a reminder, Texas um, has its own independently operated grid that covers three-fourths of the state, but not uh, um, uh, Senator Rodriguez's. Um, <laughs> Uh, region in, in El Paso, um, and that, that's called ERCOT. It's the uh, pride of Texas lawmakers and regulators um, and handles about 90% of the state's load. Um, so natural gas, wind, and solar are on the rise right now. Uh, coal is uh, declining in its share on the grid. Uh, nuclear is still hanging around. Um, in uh, 2016, ERCOT uh, had about, uh, uh, natural gas was about 44% of a uh, uh, energy use in ERCOT, uh, coal about 29%, wind 15%, nuclear 12%, uh, and less than 1% is other, which would include solar. Um, but of course, folks are going off-grid and things like that, and we'll talk about that. We'll talk about distributed uh, solar power um, a little bit later. Um, but first, um, let's talk a little bit about extreme weather um, and uh, how our electric grid has, has grappled with that. Uh, obviously, Harvey is on a lot of people's minds, um, talking winds and, and rains and, and so forth. So um, Dr. Weber, first, I, I, I was wondering, um, how would you say that our grid performed during Harvey, and was that expected, unexpected? As it, so Hurricane Harvey was a unique event in a variety of ways. It was a big rain event, as you know, from the news, and it knocked out the power, at least temporarily, for a couple hundred thousand people. 
which is a big deal, but nothing compared to hurricanes uh, was it Ike before that knocked out the power for a couple million people or the millions of people without power in Puerto Rico or Florida. So Harvey was impactful on the grid for sure, uh, but not for the power sector. And a lot of that because it was a rain event, not a wind event. And the power sector, as important as it is, is still vulnerable and fragile to wind because we have a wires and poles structure that can fall over or branches can fall into it or that kind of thing cause a problem. Because this was a water event, it really hit refineries more than the power sector. I don't think people expected that or saw that coming. A couple hundred thousand people out power is a big deal, but also not so uh, difficult to restore. So that wasn't such a, a problem. In Austin here, maybe we had a couple thousand, maybe 10,000 people without power. And I think that's interesting. That's in contrast with Ike, as I mentioned, but also Hurricane Sandy knocked out the power for a lot of people. And when the power goes out, uh, the power sector is unlike a lot of other parts of the energy sector. All the energy sector is very valuable. But the power sector is very valuable economically, and it's also critical. So there's certain things we use electricity for we don't use oil for, for example. And one is water treatment, and another is food preservation. And those are sort of life-threatening or life-critical aspects. And so when the power goes out, it's not just the inconvenience of not being able to get to work. It's actually a life-or-death situation that uh, people might die. So in Puerto Rico, where they have 3.5 million people without power, we forget Puerto Rico is a part of the United States. So these are American citizens. and. Uh, these Americans we need to be thinking about. The power outage is a problem, but it's the water problems now that will be a bigger issue. So in Texas, we didn't have that challenge uh, the same way. We have water contamination issues from the flooding, but now we have water treatment plants that could work and maybe get us back up to speed. So I think that was not really foreseen. I don't think people expected that. Uh, we, I think, normally expect that you're going to have to have many more crews bringing the power back on. That just wasn't the issue this time. Uh, it also sort of exposes the vulnerability of the power sector to above-ground wind. Um, and one of the other vulnerabilities of, uh, of the power sector is if you underground lines, that solves the wind problem, but then it's prone to flooding. Mm -hmm. And in places in New York with Hurricane Sandy, they have buried lines and overhead lines. And where it flooded, the buried lines were in trouble. And where it was windy, the overhead lines were in trouble. So everyone was in trouble. And uh, there's a lot of debate about what to do with the lines. And generally, underground is more robust because we tend to have more wind events than rain events. But in Hurricane Harvey, it might not have helped so much. And then, then it would probably cost a lot of money, too, to install lines. Underground lines cost a lot more to install, but then they're cheaper to maintain, and they are more robust, so they don't go out of power as often. So it's, it's a trade-off between upfront money and downstream money. Gotcha. And uh, Commissioner Marquez, um, the, the number I heard at several points um, right after Harvey struck was uh, roughly like 300,000 people mm -hmm. without power. Would you say that's an accurate way to describe how many people lost power during the storm? Or? So the interesting thing about Harvey is that because we have so much smart meter technology now, um, the way that we have traditionally operated in the um, SOC State Operation Emergency Center where um, everyone gathers when there's a, a huge state emergency like Harvey, um, they ask for reporting from utilities about every two hours. Um, at some mm. point, Centerpoint um, was restoring uh, power to customers of about 700,000. Um, but because it was in between intervals, those numbers weren't even reported. So the smart meter technology was, um, I, think, I think when we get further away from this event and have more time to dissect it, I think we're going to see that the smart meter technology really um, shone very brightly. And um, of course, while it was a flooding event in Houston, I will remind everyone that on the coastal bend, it was a windstorm. And um, we had lines, I, I drove down there and you know, lines weren't just down, they were picked up, crumpled, and thrown down in odd places. So um, the restoration effort in that regard was amazing. There were linemen from, uh, there were over 10,000 linemen from other parts of the country that came to Texas to help restore Puerto Rico's Rockport, Victoria, um, all of those, those smaller communities, which of course have a smaller population, but um, are rebuilding from the ground up at this point, and they got power back on in Puerto Aransas on about September 4th. So it was a really impressive effort um, due to the fact that we have had, you know, these drills and every time we have an emergency, we get a little bit better, so. And, and so when you're talking about the uh, smart meters, th those are the portals that, that allow uh, uh, energy retailers to sort of um, look, look inside um, not look inside your house, but um, look, look, look. Don't use that. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <You're wrong. laughs> there are some people who might be paranoid, there, paranoid there are that are definitely happening. Sure, um, but, sure. But, but to look at your energy use so they can quickly kind of see um, if power has tripped off there, we, we right. need to go address this. And so is it sort of save money for them to then quickly dispatch? Saves money, have? saves time. Yeah. Previously, um, the companies would ask homeowners to turn on their front porch light so they could drive through and see where the problems were in, a, in the most efficient way. That was the most efficient way that they could address it. Now, 
um, the utilities, the retailers know before the customer knows that their lights have gone out and are immediately working to assess the problem. And because we try to have a very redundant grid, when this goes down, they can reconnect you here. So um, it, I, I think that you know, there's we, we're still a little close because we still have people rebuilding, but um, but. Obviously, we're going to spend a lot of time dissecting what happened here. We're going to have the opportunity to look at what happened in Florida, um, just like we had the opportunity to survive Ike and look at Superstorm Sandy. So we are going to get better and stronger after this. And um, so, and uh, Senator Rodriguez, I'm wondering. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, um, this is a, a, a big event that sort of um, Harvey was, and some of the other storms that, that turns our attention to how robust our electricity grid is and, and, and whether there, there is more um, we can do. I'm wondering, where, where does the um, legislature fit into that? Are, are there things um, that you think the state should be looking at from a lawmaking standpoint that, that needs to happen to encourage more um, hardening of our grid? Or, or do you kind of feel like the, uh, the, the market is kind of taking care of, of it? I, I, I think that uh, we need to move in the direction of a of a better mix of, uh, of energy. The, you know, we're so reliant on fossil fuel, uh, and, and you were talking about this hurricane. There are people who, starting over at the White House, who don't believe in climate change, but some of us do, and I think that the science is there that indicates that uh, more and more, uh, as temperature rises and, and uh, we get more uh, methane up in the, into the air, carbon dioxide, the more we will uh, trigger some of these massive storms. I'm convinced of that, and I think there's reports to that effect. So I, I, I think definitely we need to be looking at all of the available technology to ensure that we can have a solid, reliable grid that we can depend on, especially during, during storms, uh, catastrophes like we've just been seeing in the news day in and day out. Uh, and so I think the legislature, you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, we're dealing with modernizing the grid. I was just commenting to someone, I deal with political gridlock. <laughs> that kind of grid. I'm dealing with that kind of grid, not, not uh, the other type we want to talk about. I don't know what I'm doing here. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, baffling because Texas, as we all know, is uh, in the forefront of wind energy development. And, and that was because of some incentives, some... Uh, policies that were enacted during uh, Governor Perry's uh, term in office, uh, but, and, and, and solar. But more recently, I mean, we got that, you know, renewable uh, portfolio standard. We've got the, the, uh, those zones that were established uh, for... Uh, so the, uh, the, 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 the CRES lines? Yes. Uh, the, the, um, so the, the uh, power lines that connect um, yes, for transmission windy West Texas of, to of energy from like one part of the state to mm -hmm. another. Mm -hmm. um, and so that kind of puts us ahead of other people. On the other hand, more recently, you see moves towards uh, curtailing that. Uh, Senator Fraser, before he left, wanted to do away with both of those policies, as we know, during the session. Uh, fortunately, that didn't pass. And uh, I guess the example I have this last session, this, this year, is uh, a bill by Senator uh, Campbell that ostensibly dealt with trying to protect encroachment on our military bases from wind farms uh, that were too close to the bases, endangering the lives of pilots. Uh, I serve on that committee, the Border Security and Veteran Affairs Committee, and it became pretty evident to me very quickly that the real impetus behind the bill was more to do away with the tax incentives for developing uh, wind power. Mm -hmm. uh, because the federal government, through the Department of Defense, through, through uh, the FAA and others, already has a mechanism in place for addressing right. any potential encroachment problems right. that raise safety concerns for military bases. And they deal with it in that way. Mm -hmm. But it was felt that, no, we needed to now prohibit any further wind farms any closer than 25 miles uh, to our military bases. Mm -hmm. So I see these initiatives as as uh, uh, being more barriers and obstacles to developing what we need. I had a, one last thing, I had a bill that, in fact, we were partners on my first bill that dealt with uh, uh, establishing, doing a study 
on using uh, renewable energy to power uh, desalination plants uh, to bring up to right. deal with brackish water. And that passed. Uh, you conducted the study. Mm -hmm. It showed that there it's a viable approach. And then so this session, I had a follow-up bill that would have required a pilot uh, program in some state land, GLO land, uh, for for this particular type of initiative, and uh, although it passed the Senate, I uh, couldn't get it out of the House. So I, I think we have a mix of where we're headed in the legislature in terms of supporting a more robust uh, mix of uh, energy resources. And uh, Dr. Hebner, I saw you um, nodding your head a couple times. Um, do, you, do you have any thoughts on kind of uh, whether um, are there um, efforts in the legislature or elsewhere that are um, uh, you know, as someone who, who researches this, that, that are Im impeding um, some of the technology that, that, that you're helping develop, or, or what, what are your thoughts about this? Well, let me, uh, sure, I, yes, sure. you're right, I, I don't have a poker face, so uh, <laughs> I'm a bad panelist. If I agree, I will be shaking my head. If I disagree, I'll <laughs> shake my head the other way. So, uh, but let me first go back to your original question. We were talking about uh, the hurricane coming through. As the token technologist on the panel, I really, I also want to point out that there is a group of researchers across the country uh, that is a small group, maybe 10 at most, uh, paid on a shoestring budget that have been, developed a model based on uh, hurricanes and cyclones around the world that, it get, that is getting really, really good at telling you if you have a rainstorm, you have this kind of trees, you have this much wind, you have this kind of power system with above and below ground percentages, this is the, the percentage outages you're going to get. And it was calibrated with a number of systems. It's been used on the smaller storms uh, going up the East Coast over the past few years. And I'm really excited about seeing what the data comes back from this one to see if we've really got a position where we can tell you within 10%, uh, if you've got this kind of storm, this is the damage you're going to have. So that, not, not that it's going to change the damage any, but what it does is it allows you to change your system so that uh, five years in advance, so that if I had that kind of storm, I'm not going to have that damage. I know, what, I know what's going to fail. I know how to change my system to, be, to become more robust. So I think the technology is developing uh, to give us that opportunity. The thing that I was shaking my head about is I spend a lot of time working with the Department of Defense uh, trying to make their uh, uh, military bases uh, basically energy secure. Uh, by the, the, we never built a fort in the Middle Ages anywhere in the world that didn't have water on the inside of it. It would have been really dumb. Uh, so, now we, so now we have to, be, our, our war fighting capability in the world is based on uh, being able to have communications. Uh, and so we have to have power. And therefore, we've got to have power inside every base. And uh, I want to reinforce what the uh, senator said. Uh, the Department of Defense knows how to handle uh, any intrusion by windmills on the outside. That's, that has not been a problem anywhere I've ever seen in the uh, uh, U.S. I mean, maybe there's one that's a little too close for some reason, but they know. How, but there is a way of handling it. That's not a systemic problem that's bothering the Department of Defense. So I agree with you, Senator. Uh, Ronnie, I want, I want to give you a, a chance to, to get in here. Um, if we go back a little bit to what we're discussing about uh, how um, you know, it, it looks like um, we're, we're seeing a lot, a lot more extreme weather that, that, that might be you know, challenging um, infrastructure across the board, but you know, including the electric grid. I'm wondering, if, can you put Texas in any sort of national context in terms of how prepared we are, maybe compared to other states? Or? Sure, and maybe I can use the, uh, the example about uh, Hurricane Sandy. I was still at um, Con Edison when we actually had a wrestle with that. Um, so just for um, level setting, uh, grid modernization involves more than just sort of replacing um, aging infrastructure and elevating uh, substations and hardening things. So it also involves um, just added, uh, uh, added visibility and control of the system so that uh, it's, you're not only, uh, for instance, making use of that technology, uh, in response to storms, but you can actually, um, you know, manage your system day to day more efficiently. So that added visibility and control um, actually uh, results in benefits throughout the year. Um, with uh, when we uh, sort of wrestled with Hurricane Sandy, um, many uh, I was based in New York. Uh, we actually uh, much of the area was out for a period of about two weeks, um, but many customers were out for a lot longer than that. Um, part of the reason is that it was a regional, um, uh, it had a regional impact, and the, essentially the utilities that you rely on for mutual aid that say, hey, look, our, 
our um, resources are taxed. Can you send us some utilities? Everyone was kind of hit at the same time. Um, so luckily, you know, that, that didn't happen here. And we, were, um, we actually had um, you know, some visibility and control that allowed us to um, manage the, the efforts there. Um, but one of the things that um, resulted from that, uh, that, um, that event was the, um, the state actually initiated a, um, a moral land commission, what they called. Um, and they investigated, um, they investigated the response of various utilities, and they made recommendations as to what should come next. Uh, one of the things that they um, actually looked into was creating a, um, a, a, a framework and an assessment of uh, climate change vulnerability. Is this New York? This is New York. Yeah. Okay. So I think some of the studies that you, you indicated are, are, can probably feed into that. Mm -hmm. But in essence, um, you're looking at all impacts of uh, potentially changing climate. So if you're an engineer um, and your system has looked um, like it did for the last 100 years, you don't necessarily have to change your variables. You sort of plan for the same conditions year after year. Um, but if you're now encountering uh, more powerful storms or more frequent storms, or extended heat waves, um, you know, how do you actually uh, uh, plan your system to account for that? So uh, much of our equipment on the distribution system, uh, it's, it, it sort of uh, goes through these cycles where you might have an extended uh, heat wave, but then the equipment has a chance to sort of cool down. And then um, you can sort of uh, begin to handle future heat waves as well. But if you, for, for instance, um, have extended heat waves that um, go beyond what you encountered in the past, maybe that equipment can't handle as much uh, demand going forward. So you have to strengthen your system as well. So you know, there, there are, I think one of the lessons learned that came out of that is really take into account um, what the, you know, the changing conditions in your system are, be it um, uh, you know, cybersecurity threats, uh, uh, the emergence of distributed energy resources, but also the impact of climate change. How are you dealing with uh, the adaptation, and how um, can you actually focus on mitigation? Commissioner uh, Marquez, I'm wondering, you know, from a statewide, um, from, from a statewide, statewide level, like, do, do you see that uh, utilities are taking changing climate patterns into account um, as much as they should, or, or does there need to be any sort of more statewide? Um, uh, uh, policy making or, or suggestions to, to, to do those types of, of studies here in Texas that New York did? So <clears throat> um, what I see in the utilities, because, because Texas has the market that it has, um, our market dictates the trends that coincidentally happen to align with people who are interested in cleaner, uh, cleaner air and cleaner energy. Um, you know, the market is not you know, it, coal is, is difficult to, there's nobody building coal right now. You know, it's, um, the market is focused on diverse portfolios for utilities and um, certainly with natural gas. And I think that you see utilities making business decisions that make sense for them that also happen to include a, a wider um, variety of <coughs> generation assets in their portfolio. So I would say, um, I th and, and as a regulator, I, I certainly have a lot of confidence in the market. And um, when we when we have generators make the decisions that that they that make sense for them, um, it it happens to benefit us quite well in Texas. I mean, we're the leader in wind in the in this country. And if we were our own country, we'd be somewhere between four and six leader in wind. And solar, um, I meet with solar folks all the time, and they're like, please just don't mess anything up. <coughs> We're fine. We're here. We're going to be competing. Just please don't mess anything up. So, I I think that um, that it's a great market in Texas for us to sit back and let people make the decisions that make sense for them. And I think we're all going to continue to benefit from it. Uh, yeah. Dr. Right. I just wanted to go back to the uh, the, the comment about um, uh, what they did in New York to get ready. Uh, when I talked about the studies that have been done, looking at how the storms have gone forward, we have we, we saw that sand, that using a, a stand, some standard sets of metrics of how how fast the recoveries are, uh, sand, uh, well, Katrina took the longest 
Uh, Ike took about half <coughs> that much, and Sandy took about half that much. And the, but the, the thing that, the, the real point I want to make is uh, after Katrina and Ike, I was going around the country pointing out that Louisiana and Texas are trying to get the, the, get the, uh, the system better, but in the, we're not going to have a national policy to try to improve the grid until a, uh, a hurricane uh, hits hard in either Washington, D.C. or New York. So in some ways, Hurricane Sandy was one of the best things for Texas and Louisiana. It made a national problem and not just a problem down here along the Gulf Coast. Gotcha. And uh, um, sort of moving on from the um, disaster right. and, and weather aspect, um, Dr. Weber, I uh, just wanted to pick up on something that uh, Commissioner Marquez had, had said uh, just about uh, talking about how, how um, in our market right now um, your people are building coal plants or I don't know if anyone is building a coal plant in, in Texas right now um, and that, you know, uh, we're seeing more and more wind and solar on the grid. Uh, we're, we're hearing, you know, from Washington, um, from, from the, you know, Trump's administration that uh, coal is great. Um, and mm -hmm. we need more coal, um, even if people aren't building it. But um, um, and and some of the backers of, of more coal are, are identifying it, you know, as a really good uh, base load generation that is, you know, reliable, easy to start up, shut down plants, that type of thing. Um, are we vulnerable in Texas as we try to incorporate more renewables onto the grid um, if, if coal plants are shutting down? Yeah, I think so. One of the big trends over the last decade or so has been the rise of wind and the rise of natural gas in the power sector, and now the more recent trend is the rise of solar alongside those two. Mm -hmm. And if you look nationally, the winners are wind, solar, and natural gas for a new build. And coal is struggling, and nuclear is struggling, and actually older gas is struggling as well. And a lot of that's just because of a cheap wind, cheap solar, cheap gas environment. It changes the market dynamics pretty dramatically. And some of that's just a purely economic decision. People want to build the cheapest stuff, and part of it is a policy preference in states with different uh, suggestions or nudges towards cleaner options or local options and that kind of thing. So the grid has changed a lot. And uh, among those changes I just mentioned are solar and wind, which are different than the other kind of sources because they're not dispatchable. They come and go with the weather or with astronomical conditions like the position of the sun relative to the earth and that kind of thing, the seasons. So it changes in a way that we don't control. And that's different than our conventional uh, operation of the grid. We have in the United States, well, you say around the world, a load following mindset. The load is the electrical load. The light switches we turn on and off and air conditioners, all day long we're changing those things. And uh, the supply follows that load up and down. So we have a lot of variability in our load through the course of a day, through the course of a year. And now those power plants follow that up and down. So we build a big power system to meet that peak load, which is 5 p.m. or 8 p.m. in Texas in August. Half of that peak load just about is residential air conditioning, by the way. And then in the spring at 3 a.m., we use a third of that. So we have a lot of systems sitting idle most of the year, but we're available for that peak demand because of this load following mindset. So we got a lot of variability. Now add in variability wind and solar, and it feels like it's going to get worse, although we found out it actually didn't get worse, which is interesting. You added a lot of variable wind, and actually the cost for managing the grid went down, and the cost for electricity went down, and the emissions went down. So that was a good news story. And part of that was because along with injecting a lot of variable wind, we also changed the market to make the market more efficient. And so it turns out that efficient markets can accommodate variability pretty easily. And we learned that with wind. We added more wind. And Grid variability went down, and all these other problems went away. So it just, well, it didn't go away, but it went down. Mm -hmm. So that, that was good news. Solar might be a little different looking forward. We expect solar to be a little more complicated than wind. Uh, West Texas wind is different than Panhandle wind, is different than Corpus Christi wind. And so you have a geographic distribution of wind, and the wind doesn't change across the whole state simultaneously. And solar could uh, within like half an hour. We could have the entire state be sunny and rise with the sun and go down with the sunset almost simultaneously in a way that wind doesn't. So solar might have steeper rise and steeper decline during the day, which means more ramping of power plants. And the same kind of thing I would say would happen as before is like, well, if you have efficient markets and good price signals, the market's will response should be fine. Might be storage, might be demand response, might be fast ramping natural gas. All those options are clean, by the way, and made in Texas. So I think that's pretty exciting. So, uh, so I think there's variability in the grid, and that's worried a lot of people. But the analysis that Dr. Heber and I did together UT as part of a large project concluded it wasn't as hard on the grid as we thought. And even the reports coming out of the uh, Department of Energy concluded the same thing, that base load is not as threatened. It might be threatened economically, but it's not as threatened from a reliability perspective the way people thought. So, and the Texas experiment is what's used by Department of Energy to prove that point. Uh, the rise of wind will kill the grid is an allegation. And then DOE says, well, look at Texas. It helped the grid. So it, it, as long as you have a diverse mix and you have the right kind of markets, the right kind of technologies, the right kind of price signals, it all works out just fine. Gotcha. And, and so you mentioned that um, market efficiency kind of helped to make this happen. And is, is that um, just the fact that um, 
the price signals were were strong enough across the board yeah. to... So Texas went to a market system for yeah. the power sector over a decade ago, and that was an, an efficiency mechanism. Uh, it was a little scary at first because we made the markets competitive, and then natural gas prices spiked, and so electricity prices spiked, and that made everyone very angry. But then natural gas prices came down, and things settled out. And then the markets went through another revision a few years ago to go from what's a zonal market to a nodal market. And basically, that just means our market's more finely resolved and it has better fidelity on a spatial scale and also on a temporal scale, on a time scale. So we have markets for the energy and then ancillary services, regulation, all, all these other market signals sent the price signal for reliability that we needed to solve it. And Brandy can correct anything I said that's wrong. No, he, yeah. he said it he said it so well, but I just was, uh, the way that non-engineers like myself describe it is basically we took our market from a skirt and we turned it into pants so we can run a little faster. Yeah, it's, it's just true, yeah, it's true. Like, but you said it I'll very well. <laughs> Uh, there's a next, moment. And next will be spandex, and we'll go even faster. <laughs> we're, we're, look, we're looking, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. the next evolution, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and you mentioned, Dr. Weber, um, a, a couple of things that uh, help make um, uh, these uh, intermittent resources, wind and solar, more efficient, uh, both storage and demand response. I'm wondering if we could just talk a little bit about um, demand response. It's kind of this uh, wonky term, but uh, I guess this idea that um, uh, power com companies are able to ramp down power um, during uh, peak load times for people who sort of sign up to these programs and you can get paid for energy you save. And I know that this um, is another thing. We, we talked about smart, smart meters that, that relies on smart meters that allow power companies to kind of control um, the, uh, how much power is coming to your house. I'm wondering, uh, Commissioner Marquez, is, is that another area where Texas could kind of improve, though, because if I recall, at least as of a year ago, like there weren't that many people who were using their smart meters that were in their, their homes and, and such. So um, one of the places where we are um, experiencing some challenges on the regulatory side in regards to smart meters is with third-party aggregators that we don't regulate. So so we have some some figuring out to do on that on that scale, but in markets where the um, where where power is is competitive and you and we have a robust retail side, I mean Texas leads the nation in um, in retail in our retail market, and we have incredibly savvy consumers and um, the things that retail <laughs> retailers are offering in regards to smart meter and smart meter technology is really cool, so innovative. I mean they're only limited by their imagination. And there are incredibly creative people out there. So there's, there's really cool technology that's happening with the smart meters and incentives that they're giving um, their customers and different programs they're off. I mean, all the, all the smart technology that you, you know, imagine that you're sitting at home and you're like, oh, I forgot to start the pot roast in the slow cooker. Not that that's ever happened to me. Um, <laughs> you know, and you start it. And, you know, or you start the laundry in the middle of the day when load is, is not at the peak, so it's cheaper. You know, they have pricing signals that, so that home, you know, uh, business industry is incredibly sophisticated at knowing the price of energy at all times, which is why we, we have a pretty good demand response program throughout Texas that they bid into um, because we, we actually allow industry to get an incentive if our market starts peaking in the middle of summer and it's getting really expensive, they can trip offline so that we have enough for, you know, homeowners. And so, um, it, it's um, they have the technology, and these and these these folks can look at their phone and say, "Power's gone up two cents. I'm going to go ahead and, you know, t kick my air conditioner up to 80 and um, save some money." So yeah, and, and, I, and I hear a lot, you know, this idea that um, um, when when you're talking about power on the grid, like um, you, you can almost equate generation to power that you save to by you know not using it um, when we're talking about. Um, reliability and, and, and things like that. So I'm wondering, are there things, is it just the, the market that needs to continue driving this, or are there other steps that the, the state could take to um, incentivize more people to um, opt into these programs that, that allow them to get paid to save power and things like that to you know, reduce the, the need to um, uh, you know, build another another power plant that's only going to be used every once in a while. Do you have any thoughts on that, Dr. Hebner? Yes. I was. Um 
The city of Boulder, Colorado tried to do that. Boulder, Colorado is a great place to uh, incentivize people to save money on their power because they all want to. It's really green. Uh, everybody's enthusiastic about doing this. And after about a month, they all quit because it took too much time and they didn't save enough money. Uh, and it's, uh, so we, we need to come up with a better answer than just say, you can save three cents a month if you spend uh, 20 minutes a, a month uh, uh, tweaking your, how you use electricity. I'm involved right now with a, I hope works out really, really well, with a, in a program with a group in the Netherlands in which we're trying to uh, take the equivalent of a, um, uh, uh, think of a, the Nest thermostat, where you make it a, a turn. Right now, in your house, you say, I, wanna, I, I want you to make available to me 100% of the power I asked for. But let's say instead of 100%, you say, give me 80 plus or minus 5% of the power, my, the average power I need. And if I make that, that band wider, uh, it really helps the utility because they, then they, they have, they, they, across your neighborhood, they can have your, your system negotiate to say, okay, if I turn on three air conditioners, uh, I can then take care of the, the, the problem that I've got too much power right now. And they can, they can adjust the whole thing, and you don't have to do anything. And if you, like the uh, uh, commissioner said, if you forgot to turn on your pot roast, and it's all of a sudden very important you have power, uh, you just turn your, your Nest thermostat back. And as a result, they can just bill you. You get a, a benefit every time you do that, but you don't really have to do anything except turn one knob once, and if it's not where you like it, turn it again. So you can save money. So we're, we're doing this in Europe. I'm hoping we can bring the technology in the U.S. Because I think it's... The way to make it simple enough that you can save money, the utility can work well, you can take advantage of, uh, of, of uh, renewables, and then the whole system would work better. Does it work yet? No, but there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of PhDs coming out who think it's the right idea. So I think the next generation is going to figure out how to do this. Yeah. So, uh, so Senator, you can just. Tell your, your your colleagues that we need to do what the Europeans are doing, and I'm sure that's that. <laughs> yeah. oh, that oh, that'll sell a heartbeat. That, that sells um, so well in Texas. But, uh, I, I I do want to um, pivot a little bit and, and remind ourselves that that um, it's not just about power on the grid. You know, there's also lots of really interesting discussions to be had about uh, distributed power. You know, off grid, um, solar power. Um, Senator, I wanted to go to you because I know that you've been pretty vocal about an issue um, around El Paso with El Paso Electric and some of your views about. Um, I, I guess I'll, I'll just let you introduce the issue about the demand charges for people yeah. who do go off-grid. Well, you know, let's start with the, with the understanding that El Paso calls itself the Sun City. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have over 300-some days of, of sun in El Paso, so it's a natural environment for developing solar uh, power, solar energy there, distributed ge generation. Uh, and so in 2011, when I came into the Senate, based on some discussions I had with some of the, some of the proponents of uh, solar energy, I uh, filed a bill that established uh, net metering for the, for the community in El Paso. And, and it started slowly, but it, it has jumped tremendously from, I mean, uh, we're up to almost 3,000 people that uh, have installed uh, rooftop solar. And I was looking at an article about Indiana, the whole state of Indiana has like 1,200 or something like that. Uh, so El Paso has more than the state of Indiana, twice as much um, of the interest there. The, and, and what people here need to understand, El Paso is not under ERCOT, it's, it's a monopoly. It's in the Western grid. Uh, so we don't have some of the choices that, that uh, have been talked about here. And I thought that trying to promote uh, solar and to the extent that we can wind power out there, uh, that would give us a more diverse mix uh, and, and more choice. The electric company, of course, uh, like all utilities, seek uh, rate increases to cover some of their expenditures, some of their costs. In the case of El Paso Electric, they're talking about building some new plants mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, from my point of view, are not the way to go in the future. Uh, given what Professor Weber said about how uh, his alternative renewable sources seem to be getting cheaper and cheaper and, and more reliable. Uh, and so the, the electric company, though, wanted to, starting in a great increase in 2015, and then again uh, this uh, year, uh, asking for uh, treatment of solar residential customers differently as a different class. They wanted to establish what they call a partial requirements class. Uh, meaning that, well, you get part of your power from the, from the regular grid that we uh, operate, that at the same time you're getting part of it from your 
solar uh, panels. Uh, and so they wanted to impose a, an additional cost for that particular class. And then they wanted to impose a demand charge as well, which normally, as we know, has been applied to commercial uh, uh, entities so and not residential. It's the idea that they're, they're, uh, they may be off grid, but they're still connected in, right. in case of backup. So they're, they're, they're paying for you know, almost like renting space on the grid in case they need to, right, to use right, it as, right. as backup. And so the bottom line is that these proposals in the rate increase, and I'm talking with the commissioner here, I think. Yeah. Who, who, a no, we're not talking. We're not uh, talking. Commissioner, just want to mention, Commissioner Marquez can't legally yeah. talk about this because there's a, a case before uh, there her. Is a, <laughs> there is a settlement, and I think all the parties have agreed to it. It's just it's doing the paperwork. Yeah. Uh, so that's why I feel free to okay. wait, uh, wait um, in front of the commissioner. Yeah. Well, so, You're the senator, so, so you so can do that. It's, to me, it's been a battle to ensure that we uh, not discourage the development of, of solar renewable energy. Uh, which is the way I see it in terms of the, of the political fight there. And, and I think our, earlier we were talking about the market and the efficiencies and how should, that determines where we're headed. But, I mean, we all know that politics, you know, and the injection of politics, including that Department of Energy report by, uh, mm -hmm. by Secretary Perry, you know, sort of downplays the impact of solar and, and renewables on, on, uh, on providing uh, the necessary... Uh, resources, the, the coal power industry is still very much alive and kicking and wanting to, you know, sure. dreaming that uh, it can come back to its former glory, which everybody says will never happen. Uh, so these are the things that we have to grapple with. It's not just the market, it's also the politics. Sure. So I want to mention, uh, we're going to go to questions in about three minutes, so you have, if you have any in your head, uh, get those ready. I wanted to ask um, Ronnie, you know, we, we brought up this um, kind of complicated issue, I guess, of, of, of net metering and demand charges. Um, I feel like I've read a lot about those types of fights going on in a lot of states. Can you give us um, some sort of broader context for, for what's going on in this, um, I, I guess, in the sphere of, um, uh, are, are there a lot of states that um, have utilities that are trying to charge customers who are going off grid? Sure. So there, um, you know, I, I think the focus on net metering um, and, for instance, some customers not paying their fair share and still relying on the grid, you know, it's, a, it's something that's not new and it's, it's been common and examined across many states. Um, however, some of the uh, more progressive states are actually looking at, um, are there any benefits associated? So let, let's not just focus on the cost. Are there any benefits to having more distributed energy resources um, closer to the demands closer to the load, so you're avoiding, for instance, uh, many of the transmission and distribution losses. Um, how does that impact um, your peak? So for instance, a utility might uh, 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 build out uh, additional uh, equipment, substation, or capabilities to meet a, uh, a daytime peak. But if the, uh, the resources that are available to, in that area actually offset that, um, you know, some of that peak, then maybe the, the customers are actually realizing a deferral of uh, equipment that you other, otherwise would have to build out. So you know, I, I think um, you, know, you can take the, the, the issue of cross-subsidy to an extreme and start charging people with inefficient um, air conditioners because they are imposing a cost on the grid that we all have to, um, you know, share in. Um, but, but I think, uh, you know, where it's, it's been um, the most productive is when there is a, um, in, an honest and open discussion with all stakeholders on, um, you know, what are the, not just focus on the costs, what are the, what are the benefits that we are realizing? Um, it's not just the short-term imposition of having to um, build out a line, um, but really, are we deferring, uh, you know, billions or, or millions in um, uh, capital expenditures by focusing on distributed energy resources? Um, and I think that that's something that um, many states are actively exploring. Um, again, New York is, is one of them, um, where we are looking at distributed energy resources to offset a um, transmission and distribution uh, station that otherwise would have to be built. Dr. Weber, I see you, you wanted to jump in, um, or, or actually. Uh, I guess we both want Senator. to jump in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. we can be really Dr. quick, and then we'll, um, if, if uh, um, 
Uh, Senator, if you want to jump in, and then we'll go to a Well, no, I, I, I was just going to say uh, I agree with everything he said, but uh, there is a concerted movement, and it was reported in the New York Times just this past summer, uh, by the utility companies to try to stifle the development of solar power. I mean, that's, uh, there's, there's uh, I mean, the reports were they had their meetings, they decided they were going to draft legislation done through the Koch Brothers ELEC, uh, enterprise and uh, came up with legislation that's been proposed in different states that would impede the further development of solar. And so it's, it's you know, we, we talk about the economics of it. And, and so... There's more to it. There's more to yeah, it. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. So I just want to point that out. Yeah, sure. I think one way to solve it is to get utilities to own the panels and put them on people's roofs and then they own them and, and instead of the homeowner owning them. And then you could avoid all the demand charges. They're still selling power. They're selling cleaner local power. And uh, I think there's a lot of benefits from like that. Like San Antonio. Yeah, like San Antonio. Antonio. Yeah, so it doesn't have to be a us versus them thing. Utilities could work a partnership. Gotcha. All right, question time. Uh, who's, oh, <laughs> we, right by the mic already. So. Uh, nuclear power. You know, how, how do we uh, keep that as part of the mix? Or do we let it go away? Uh, thoughts? He, he said the N-word, which I think is right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> But Bob's made one at first, yeah. Right, I'm happy to respond to that. Uh, I think nuclear power is a great thing to uh, keep down uh, CO2, and I think nuclear power is now one of the most expensive sorts of power that we can have, uh, and unless we can put together a program to drive down the cost, uh, it's gonna die. Why would you want to pay, you know, if I can put out a solar plant uh, for, I don't know, X number of dollars, and it's gonna cost me 15 billion maybe to put up a nuclear plant, why do I wanna do that? So I'm not going to get the investment. I'm not going to get the technology. I'm not going to get anything until we can invest in driving down the cost of nuclear. I think, how do you get yeah. the scale with uh, solar versus nuclear? How, I mean, how, how big no, is I'm a big nuclear fan, but I've, uh, yeah. I've written a bit about the fact that until you can get the... I'm never going to be able to sell politically an idea that says, you know, nuclear is so good that we need to pay eight times more for that than we would for solar power. We need to get the cost down. And, and I agree with that. I think uh, nuclear's role is very important the more you care about carbon, right. but costs are really prohibitive, and that's a challenge. Right. So if there's a governmental policy lever, it's to invest aggressively in R&D to drive down those costs. Yep. And then it becomes a more competitive option. And that will probably not be something that looks the same as what we built in the 1960s. Right. It'll probably have to look different. It'll probably have to be smaller. It'll probably have to have dry cooling and have some of the other advantages. And there's a lot of uh, investment from venture capitalists with names like Bill Gates and others putting this area because they're looking at a care for carbon and a care for uh, reliability uh, and a uh, dislike for high cost. Right. And so small modular, other things that all feel like they're five to 50 years away are probably going to be the next wave. Probably not the boiling water, pressurized water reactors of, of decades ago. And, and I'll just echo quickly a little footnote that the Department of Energy cited on this. If you lose nuclear, then you, you lose your scientists. And that makes us more vulnerable globally. So it's a worthwhile technology on several different points. And Brady, and that report, they were actually citing my paper on that, by the way. So just a little. Uh, <laughs> it's got me, man. They were, awesome. Yeah, they reported me. Yeah. yeah. So when it starts uh, here, it changes. The, the excellent point. Yeah, right. thank you. I, I agree with her. Yeah. So next, All right. yeah. Uh, next question. Um, I also have a question about nuclear. What are we doing to uh, waterproof the backup generators? Uh, so, so in, maybe, I'm sorry. Oh, no, you, you feel free. Well, I say in Fukushima, the, the challenge with Fukushima, well, the many challenges with Fukushima, but the one that really became a longstanding problem was that the backup generation system was at a lower altitude than the main power plant. And so it had a flooding problem. And, the, and uh, I'm not an expert. I'm a mechanical engineer. I'm not an electrical engineer. But I'm told water and electricity do not combine well. <laughs> and so, uh, so when they had a flooding system, it backed out the safety systems and everything else. And that was a problem specific to a lot of the Japanese coastal nuclear power plants, which is a problem. I don't think our Texas power plant, we don't have that many on the coast in the first place, but I don't think we just uh, have that problem. And I know after Fukushima, there was a review to look at specifically that issue, not just the elevation to make it uh, not as prone to flooding, but other uh, challenge they might have. Uh, and this is one of the tricks with safety in general. A lot of our safety systems depend on electricity. And when uh, there's an accident, one of the first things to go out is often electricity. Mm -hmm. And then your safety system can't respond. And that's uh, a problem for nuclear, but a problem for all power plants. The power sector itself consumes about 5% of our electricity. People don't realize that. Our power plants need electricity to run, which is sort of a bizarre counter-dependence. Mm -hmm. And so solving that's very important, not just the altitude, the backup generation, but maybe storage, 
Uh, some of the newer systems like solar and, and wind don't really need the power on site to run. And so having a diverse mix, having some black start capability for power plants to bring back on, that's all important. But that particular flooding issue seems to be less a risk in the United States. Right. And, and just to add to that, so, you know, obviously in Harvey, one of the, one of the stories that came out was the um, new plant that Austin Energy owns part of. And um, I will tell you that um, there is nobody, the, the electric industry is a brotherhood, sisterhood. They have each other's backs and they go out in horrible weather to make sure that our refrigerators don't go out and we have problems at our homes. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a necessary, um, it's a necessary commodity for us, for our survival. For them, they will work so hard. So 250 employees went into that plant and shuttered in for, I think it was uh, between a week and nine days to make sure that it was safe. And there are so many safety protocols that, you know, had the water gotten to a certain level, they would have taken new safety measures. But, but they kept that plant online. They did it safely. They stayed away from their families, who their families were flooding at the time. And um, we just, you know, the debt of gratitude we all owe to the people who keep this state electrified is pretty amazing. So I feel, and, and we were in constant communication, and of course that's all people, you know, it's all I want to know about. What, what about that new plant? What's going on with that new plant? They were 15 steps ahead of anything I could have asked at all times, and I, had a, a tr I have more confidence today than I've ever had before in... Um, in that industry. And that was a STP nuclear plant yes. near Matagorda Bay. Right. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Uh, lots of questions. No, another one. Um, you touched a little bit on the legal and some of the economic aspects of the solar roof, um, power wall sort of technology that, that can take buildings off the grid. But I want to ask about an engineering aspect of it. Uh, if this becomes a widespread trend, and we don't know yet exactly how widespread or how quickly that will happen, but what are the challenges that the grid will face there, and are we ready for them? Hmm. I always have a comment, so I'm ha you know, so you should look to me, but uh, and I'm sure about. Uh, I think so. If you think of like the power wall specifically, or energy storage in general, just uh, no, it's buildings coming off the grid. Off the grid. So buildings coming off the grid is is a major challenge economically for conventional business models. It's not necessarily a challenge to reliability or cleanliness or affordability and that kind of right. thing. So having more people go off the grid, but we also should define what going off the grid means. But more people being self. Uh, self-supplied by local energy, whether it's microturbines and natural gas or solar panels, some combination, that has a lot of benefits and a lot of, a lot of uh, ways we all benefit in the building and also outside the building. It is a challenge for the conventional business model, though, because the conventional business model of a conventional utility is they own power plants, they own wires and poles, and they all have costs. If we look around the United States, to replace the power sector would cost about $5 trillion. That's power plants, wires and poles, substations maybe transformers as well, but not even the meters and the appliances, which is another trillions of dollars. The depreciated value of the power sector is about two trillion. That's a lot of trillions. And that the costs are split 60-40. 60% of that value is in the power plants and 40% is in the wires and poles. So there's a 60-40 split on trillions of dollars. Our utility bill in general for a typical American household is about 100 bucks a month, 10 cents a kilowatt hour, a kilowatt hour 100 kilowatt hours, 1,000 kilowatt hours, so 100 bucks a month. And our charges are $5 fixed, $95 variable. But the grid is actually $40 fixed, $60 variable. There is a mismatch, and that is a problem. And so as people go off the grid but are still connected to it for backup, they're paying $5 to rent the grid even though it costs 40 bucks. That's why you're getting all these demand charges and other things that are a challenge. Is the, the utility saying, well, we lost all the revenue from the kilowatt hours. We're getting 5 bucks. It cost me 40 just to stay connected. So there's a fundamental mismatch in how the actual costs are and what we bill for, and there's a whole variety of reasons why we do that, which is we don't want to price poor people out of access to electricity and that kind of thing. Um, so that's why we need utilities to change their business model to get on the other side of the meter and provide the services or own the solar panels or own the power wall, that kind of thing, so that there's still alignment of interest rather than a conflict of interest between the, the parties. And so as we see a rise of microturbines, diesel generators, solar rooftops, power walls, speaking chilled ice at night for air conditioning, that's going to hurt the conventional business model it has unsustainable, they'll go bankrupt. They better uh, fix, fix it or figure it out. Their solution most of the day is fight solar. And I'm like, well, maybe that's not going to really work, but uh, maybe get on the other side of the meter and be a service provider instead of a seller of electricity. I think that's probably the solution. It's a, it's a big change. And their CEOs are freaked out about this, for sure. Well, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, what, so what you're saying is, I mean, to the extent that you've got more people off the grid, you are, I think I hear you saying, you, you are reducing the cost of transmission, 
cost and transition cost stay the same. The, you're reducing 60% of it, but the 40% stays fixed. It's actually flipped in reducing, Texas. Yeah, in te we're, six, we're 60 40 in Texas. Transmission but, costs are 60. Because we're more rural, yeah. But the amount you're reducing is potentially resulting in lower cost to the. To the uh, consumer. Yes and no. So you're so the wires people still connect to the wires and poles, mm -hmm. but now you're dividing that cost over fewer kilowatt hours. Mm -hmm. So that makes it more costly for the utility, right. cheaper for the consumer. Cheaper for the consumer. But there's a mismatch there. Yeah, Dr. Wants to, uh, right. Jump in. Yeah. Your question is a great one because it actually provides a challenge to the utilities. Right now, the cheapest, cleanest power you can get is utility scale solar uh, in your community, uh, and they should keep it that way. I, there's no way that you should be able to compete by buying a power wall and be able to be, be, be less costly. It should always cost you more money to do that unless, the, uh, unless we, we put in some weird regulation. So it, it provides the utility an incentive to say, yes, if you want to leave the utility, go ahead. All you have to do is pay a lot more money. Uh, so I think that there's, I think this is a, a, a wonderful challenge. We also talk about uh, the fact that uh, you can save money, but the utility has to pay for it. The other way that I like to look at it is if you sit in your neighborhood, there's a transformer there. That transformer does somewhere in Austin between six and nine houses. Somebody has to pay for that transformer. If you go if you go off grid, right now you 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 and six neighbors are paying for it. If you go off grid, uh, you stop paying for it, but your six neighbor your five neighbors your six neighbors still have to. If two go off, then four have to. So it's not the utility making money; it's your next door neighbor subsidizing you. And you that may be the right thing to do. Right. I mean, that's what I trust the commissioner yeah, that's, and that's, the senator to worry about. But we do have to worry about. Let's not demonize this as being the utilities doing this. This is how much you're how much money you're taking from your neighbor too. All right. and we can get at yep. least one more question, and maybe two. And I'll be quiet. Uh, sorry, everyone's got questions. <laughs> no, this is. Th thank you. This is fantastic. And, and actually, I want to go more into it if possible. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> let's let's, let's, let's dive. Um, and, and, and this is in context with the El Paso Electric specifically, because this is uh, just a wonderful framework for this. Um, the agreement that is in place right now currently states that distributed generators will not be in a new rate case. On the other hand, people who now install distributed generation will have a monthly minimum charge that they can't go below. So my question is in two parts. First, this $30 monthly minimum, is that um, a, a big deal incentive-wise in terms of the financial uh, incentives for installing solar? Or is it just kind of a, oh, that's kind of okay, not, not going to be hugely detrimental? And second, is there anyone working towards doing a policy lever that directs the utilities to study where they can benefit from distributed generation? Because that, as you're talking about in New York, yeah, yeah. is how they saved $700 million in avoided infrastructure investments. And so if, if we're not telling them to study how to save the money, then they're not going to save the money. But they have a chance to really get into the granularity of which of those transformers yep. Yep. can benefit from the distributed generation. Yep. No, I'll let the somebody else. I've, I've well, been talking too much. I, I'll let the senator talk. I, I may be mistaken, uh, Daniel. Uh, don't we have an interim charge on that question uh, as to how much can be saved and, and the impact of distributed generation that we submitted for uh, interim uh, review by our committees? Uh, that I mean, you're, you're raising some very interesting <laughs> questions here uh, with regard to, uh, at least with regard to the way it operates in El Paso. And, and I think it's important to answer those those issues uh, so that we can all know where we're headed. I mean, it's, right. I, I really don't know. I wasn't part of the negotiations, and I haven't had a chance because it just happened. It was just literally announced this past week. Right. I don't know right. the details of how they arrived at the $30, for example. Uh, and they're grandfathering in under the settlement, as I understand it, the people that have solar now, the 3,000 folks. Uh, but in 20 years, they're going to have to start paying that yeah. minimum Ryan, did, did you want to jump in real quick, and then we're unfortunately going to have to wrap up. Yeah, yeah. and um, you know, I think this is uh, something that's being examined in particular in California and New York again, um, that essentially we're looking at the utility to serve as a market maker for um, distributed energy resources. So we have that wholesale market at the uh, wholesale level, but for instance, can we um, dispatch some of these distributed energy resources to not just meet your own needs as a, as a customer, but if there are ancillary services that you can provide to the, the grid. Um, first, um, you have this market maker, which would be the utility, uh, indicating the areas of need. And then you have various distributed energy resources providing um, for that. So um, you know, I, I think that's how you're able to defer um, uh, capital investments. And this is how you can also 
uh, manage the, the cross-subsidy. So you, you, even if you yourself are not using uh, the solar panel or, or the storage, maybe the, the system around you needs it for right. um, contingencies, maybe it needs it for, right. again, just balancing the load. So this is um, something that the DOE is actually looking to um, build out a, a, um, a framework, um, some, uh, uh, you know, essentially some, some infrastructure and some cross-learning across uh, a number of, of uh, you know, jurisdictions to figure out how a, an animated distributed energy uh, resource market can actually help uh, lessen the, the potential um, uh, negative impacts uh, of, of potential cross-subsidy and ensure that um, irrespective of whether um, you know, your resources are being used by you, um, we, you know, we are still sharing it. Um, so I, I think that's um, a way that's out there. Um, well, we've gone a couple minutes past, um, and I know a lot of uh, you, you had other questions that didn't get answered. So um, hopefully, maybe you can flag down a, a, a panelist uh, uh, to ask. But I just want to thank you all for coming out. I know there's um, this was uh, thank you the best grid panel I've moderated in five years. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Must have got a pretty low bar.